Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we get into this week's episode with Helen Joyce, I just wanted to let you know about a hugely exciting development at Spiked. The Spiked podcast with Tom Slater, Ella Whelan and Fraser Myers will now be available on video every week. So if you prefer to watch rather than just listen to your podcasts, you can catch new episodes of the Spiked podcast on the Spiked YouTube channel or on the Spiked website every Friday. Don't miss this week's show where I'll be joining Fraser and Ella to try to make sense of another mad week in politics. So that's the Spiked podcast every Friday on the Spiked YouTube channel or on our website at spiked-online.com. I have by now seen males on the podium taking gold surrounded by women too many times. The first time I saw saw it, I truly thought that that was the end of it. I thought you could show that picture to anybody and anybody would get it straight away. Well, it just turns out that the body denialism goes very far. And then there's this 43-year-old who seems quite out of condition, comes in and lifts more than most of the women. I mean, what what can wake people up? Like, if you can't look at Laurel Hubbard, if you can't think about rapists in women's jails... If you can't think it's obvious that you wouldn't allow men into the changing top shop, etc. What is it? What is it that wakes you up? I don't know. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Helen Joyce. Helen is a journalist, editor and author. She is an executive editor at The Economist and was previously editor of its finance pages and its international section. Helen is the author of the new book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality, which digs down into the fractious discussion about sex and gender and into the problems with a transgender ideology. So, Helen, let's talk about your book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality, which is a very good book and has had lots of positive notices already. And it's part of a broader intellectual pushback against transgender activism and against the excesses of transgender activism in particular. And there is this kind of pushback that's coming from primarily from women, from thinkers, from activists, from feminists who've had rather enough of some of the claims that are being made and some of the encroachments that are being made by transgender activists. And I wanted to ask you, just to kick us off, what was the moment that got you interested in this issue and made you think it was necessary to start mounting a critique of it? Was there a boiling point? Was there a moment when you were pushed over the edge? Or was this a kind of more slowly growing concern about where this issue was heading? I think there were two issues or two moments and each of them meant something different to me. Um, I should say I distinguish very strongly, both in my own thinking and in the book, between transgender people and transgender activism. Yeah. I have no objection to people who find it difficult to live in the world presenting mm. as members of their sex. And I think that it's a part of any a decent society to try to accommodate all sorts of different people. Uh, I have a huge problem with the truth claims of transgender activism, namely that our biological sex either doesn't matter or isn't real, and that's something that we feel should be allowed to overwrite it. And so I was bothered by that really from the beginning, because if you abandon the sort of material reality of sexed bodies, in particular women's sex bodies, you have no basis upon which to assert anything that you need to do specially for women, like have, you know, places where women can get undressed without men hanging around, Mm -hmm. or, you know, sports that are specially for women without men coming in and taking all the medals. 
And I realized that straight away. Um, but that got me interested and it got me concerned and it got me reading and thinking, but it didn't get me over the hill or over the edge to writing a book. That was meeting uh, people who are detransitioners. So these are people who were fooled by this ideology into thinking mm. that they needed to transition to be happy, that they had this weird inner soul thing that's actually an opposite sex soul and that that explained everything that was bad about their lives. Happens a lot to teenage girls these days um, because there's a lot wrong with being a teenage girl, it turns out. <laughs> it's quite hard in some ways. And somebody comes along and says, the reason you find it so hard is that you're really a boy, you take testosterone, you maybe get mastectomy. And some of them you know, that I know have had hysterectomies, had their ovaries removed, and then realize this is all a chimera. Mm. So that struck me as a grotesque medical scandal and child abuse. And yeah. that, was what, that was the moment when I said, well, you know, it doesn't matter where this goes, doesn't matter if it blows up everything, I have to write this book. Um, okay, so I... I very much share your your focus on distinguishing between trans people and trans activism because they are very different things and you make that very clear in your book that there is the vast majority of people want trans people to be able to live freely to live without discrimination without persecution and to be as happy as it's possible for a person to be um but then there is the transgender movement which is something that claims to speak for trans people but as you articulate very well it often pushes an agenda that runs counter not only to women's rights but also to the interests of trans people themselves potentially in terms of the backlash which i want to get touch on that issue with you later on but one thing that i want to ask you about just to start this ball rolling on the problems with this movement and the conflicts that it raises is you you talk about the fact that this is a movement that presents itself as the new civil rights movement and we hear this kind of terminology all the time you'll often hear people saying that helen joyce and the likes of helen joyce are on the wrong side of history they are the kind of people who would have tut tutted at rosa parks when she refused to give up her seat uh, th that's the kind of language and the kind of boasts that are made by aspects of the transgender movement. So how would you categorize this movement? I know that you you compare it to being almost like a state religion, but why do you think it's important that we uh, disentangle this claim that it's a civil rights movement and really call it out for being something else? So if you look at civil rights movements, what they do is they notice distinctions without a difference. They say that there is no good reason. There's no reason that is anything except prejudiced for not letting women vote. There's no reason mm -hmm. that's anything but prejudiced for slavery. You, you, can't, you can't stand these things up on their merits. You're making a distinction between men and women that is a, a distinction without a difference when it comes to how you run your country. And so civil rights movements are movements by the oppressed group to take back this, to, 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 to put themselves on an equal footing with the oppressor group. Mm. And it's an equal footing that's justified so it wouldn't be a civil rights group movement if we said that, for example, small children had the right to make the sort of decisions that adults make, because that's not a distinction without a difference. It's a distinction that's based on a difference. We say mm. that five-year-olds you know, need parents to consent for them for all sorts of things because children aren't the same as adults. Now, really, in every way that I can think of that matters, black and white people really genuinely are the same. Mm. It's just the most minor differences. It's just skin colour, you know. I mean, it, 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 you know, you, you really have to have, have prejudice to see it. And then maybe there's more real difference between gay and straight people in the sense that they have different partners. But when it comes to things like being allowed to marry the person you love or work or move around safely, it's a distinction without a difference. But then when you come to men and women, there are distinctions mm. that are differences. Men, you know, male and female are really very different things in some places, in others not. 
So this distinction without a difference would be, you know, women should be allowed to vote, they should be allowed to work, you know, they should be allowed to stand for office, they should be allowed to do everything they want. But then when it comes to bodies and thinking about who gets pregnant and who can be raped and who's stronger and the fact that men commit nearly all violent crime, that men are sexual aggressors, women are mostly the victims, those sorts of things, it's not a distinction without a difference. You actually have to start talking about the fact that these are two different things. So that answers, I think, two your two questions which sounded like they were different but they come from the same place like one is this is not a civil rights movement because it's not demanding that we ignore a distinction without a difference it's ignoring it's asking that you ignore a distinction that has a difference and then Mm -hmm. why should we care well because we are all sexed we are all either male or female so if somebody comes along and says that doesn't matter they're saying something about all of us they're not saying something just about trans people, which is, you know, the first thing that people tend to say to me when they ask about the book is, you know, they say some things that count as very transphobic if you are in the in the movement. They say things like, remind me again, a trans woman is a man who thinks he's a woman or a woman who thinks he's a man. And it's like, you know, that's just massive no-no for the activists. But then the next thing they say is, but surely there's hardly any of them. Why does it matter? Mm. But it's not a claim about trans people they're making. It's a claim about all of us that they're making. That's a very useful description of the problem at hand. Okay, so I want to touch uh, on the issue of trans rights, which is a term I have a problem with. And of course, if you say you have a problem with this term, people will think that you want to deny rights to trans people. But of course, my view is that trans people should have the exact same rights as everybody else, the right to vote, the right to freedom of speech, the right to freedom of religion, everything that all the rights that we enjoy. But trans rights has become a problematic term, hasn't it? Because it actually means something else. And one thing that you talk about in your work is that trans rights has become completely and utterly bound up with gender self-identification. So when we hear what has become almost a religious mantra, which is trans rights are human rights, trans rights are human rights, and these kinds of things are always repeated like 10 times, which I think proves the kind of religious aspect to some of these claims, we are invited to accept trans rights as being similar to women's rights and other rights that have played an important role in the advancement of humanity over the past few decades. Uh, but you talk about the the way in which trans rights now basically just means gender self-identification is a problem because gender self-identification itself is problematic. Yeah, so there are sort of core human rights that every human should have, you know, that you're not subjected to state violence and you have free speech and so on. And then there are group rights as well. I mean, maternity rights are rights that only mm. pertain to female people. And if you don't have those rights, female people can't take their part in society. So in principle, there could be trans rights that are on top of human rights. You could say to yourself, you know, if somebody identifies as a member of the opposite sex or they don't identify with their own sex, what special rights might this person need in order to take full part in society? But that's not what's done. I would be well on board for doing that, for doing a bit of serious thinking. It'd be like disabled rights or um, gay rights, you know. I mean, gay rights was saying gay people could marry the same way that straight people can marry and so on. But you know, it didn't look like that at first. It looked like they were asking for something unnatural or different or on top of everybody else. Like people used to say to gay men, well, you can get married. But I mean, they could only get married to someone they didn't want to get married to. So, you know, what sort of right is that? So if we were thinking like that and we were saying, you know, how do we accommodate people, who, these very unusual people who really aren't comfortable in their sex bodies, well on board with that, thinking about this group and what this group's needs are. But instead, as you say, it's come to mean what I call gender self-identification, which is this idea that every one of us has inside ourselves something that's innate, 
you know, in the most simplistic forms of this of this um, ideology, it's an immutable thing. I call it like a sexed soul. And that is the thing that makes you a man or a woman or possibly in the most recent iterations, something else like non-binary or gender fluid or something. And if that's what you think, you have to rearrange everybody's rights because some of our rights are sex based. Like the right to single-sex accommodation, mm. the right to single-sex sports, which are all rights that are actually women's rights, really, because men can cope mm. fine without them. So if you're rearranging the world so that everything is done according to what people say they are, you're taking away rights from the people who want it done according to their sex bodies. Like, it's not possible for me to have a female-only space if males can self-identify into it. It's just a logical impossibility. Yeah. And the only way you can think that it's possible is if you call that male a woman. But it doesn't feel like a woman to me. Like they feel like a woman, fine. I'm not arguing. I'm just saying they don't feel like a woman to me. So mm. my rights are being taken away. And those two things are not compatible. We've got to find a different way to accommodate that male person. This really blows open, I think, what is one of the most important issues in the trans discussion, which is the issue of what is happening to women's rights and the new ways in which women's sex-based rights, particularly women's right to access spaces, for them and them alone, the way in which that has been utterly undermined by the transgender movement. And so you will often hear trans allies, particularly trans allies in the liberal media, they will often say to women, in fact, uh, you know, what difference does this make to your life? It, it has no impact on you whatsoever if we stop using the word breastfeeding or if we refer to someone with the correct pronouns or if we give this person who thinks he's a woman the right to access changing rooms and so on it doesn't really make any difference to you stop fussing but actually as you've just indicated that's not true and it does seem to me often when i observe this discussion as someone who is neither trans nor a woman so i'm kind of i am kind of an observer of it it does seem to me that transgender activism and this is not transgender people but transgender activism has become one of the most um, important ways in which women's rights are being undermined in the uh, early 21st century in terms of the oblit the potential obliteration of women's spaces the potential obliteration even of something like all women shortlists for political parties so how much do you think it has linked up with an old style misogyny, which is just intolerant towards the idea of women having their own rights and their own spaces. Or do you think that's something that's happened kind of accidentally and almost unwittingly? I don't think that this could ever have started if people saw women as fully actually human as men are and as centred in their own lives the way that men are. Like there's, it's extraordinary to watch some of the most angry and tolerant trans rights activist men. Um, you know, I don't mean trans people, I mean men. Mm -hmm. They're so angry mm -hmm. when women assert boundaries. It's extraordinary. You know, they, I honestly look at them and I think it's as if the sofa stood up and said, I'm sick of you sitting on me. Uh, you know, I want to, I want to go to the other part of the living room, thanks. <laughs> or something like that. And um, so, you know, I call it supporting actress syndrome. Women are only really meant to be there as they fit around men. And there are women who like doing that, and it works quite well when you're young and you're beautiful. And you maybe don't notice that that's why you're getting attention and why everything's going well for you. You know, you may think that, you know, all these guys at work are very impressed by the quality of your analysis of the, the, the third quarter results or something. Um, so you just, you, you're just not really aware of it, I think, unless you're quite observant. I think that's one of the reasons that young women can be quite ignorant about where this is going for them. Like they can mm. say, oh, I don't mind, it's fine with me, you know. 
And they don't know that when they get older and they start to say, no, I don't like this. I don't want this. And you're like, oh, bloody hell, that old woman, that cow, you know, she thinks she's got rights to say something. She thinks that she matters. <laughs> so I don't think, I don't think it was like that people sat down and said, you know, I really hate women and I'm not allowed to call them witch or bitch anymore. So let's go for turf. Yeah. But I don't think you could have had an ideology that suggested that what made you a woman was a feeling or a thought or an action or a role or, you know, accessories or any of those things. If you really saw women as fully human, you have to, they have to be other, you know, in the expression of the second sex of Simone de Beauvoir's famous book, like they're defined around men. Mm. So in that sense, I think it is fundamentally really sexist. And then, of course, you know, I think there's a whole bunch of men who don't give a shit about Simone de Beauvoir or any of those things, but this is just a really, really great chance to shout at Rosie Duffield or J.K. <laughs> Rowling or whoever yeah. the hell you like, you know. Um, I want to actually wanted to ask you about precisely those two women and others, including yourself, in fact. The one thing that has alarmed me over the past few years has been just the visceral nature of some of the comments that have been made about women. And it's always worse for women. I mean, I've had flack for things I've said about the transgender movement. I've encountered a couple of um, protests when I've spoken at, at Oxford and other universities and all those kinds of things. But it's usually fairly mellow. And it's like, oh, this is just some bloke sounding off, you know, seen as being part of the natural course of things that you might have a controversial commentator who would say particular things. But when women raise this issue and when women say, well, actually, we're going to stand up for our interests, which we think run counter to some of the claims being made by transgender activists, the visceral nature of the response sometimes, even in this era of social media insanity, is really deeply disturbing. So J.K. Rowling, of course, is subjected to rape threats and death threats. Rosie Duffield, uh, I just think the attempt to expel her from the Labour Party by supposed LGBT activist is just grotesquely misogynistic and she's never said anything transphobic. She's simply expressed views that are favourable of women's rights and favourable of gay rights, in fact. And then, of course, women like you and others will often be called TERFs, which is a 21st century version of calling a woman a witch, you know, a bad woman, cast her out of polite society. What do you think explains the visceral nature of the response to any pushback, because surely a, a movement that was confident of itself, like a genuine civil rights movement, for example, would be able to brook criticism, would be able to brook dissent, would be able to intellectually push back against it. But there's something about this movement which responds in an incredibly rash way, particularly to women. I think that the, um, the highly linguistic nature of the movement is very important. So what trans rights are understood to be in the ideology, as opposed to my version of it, which would be like thinking about what it is that trans people need to fully flourish. What it means is forcing everybody else to see reality your way. Mm. So if you are a male person who feels like a woman, everybody else is not just meant to say, oh, you know, okay, fine, I'll go along with that. I see where you're going with this. I'm you know, very happy to accommodate you in every way I can, but you know, obviously you're not going to come into our changing rooms or our sports because that's actually where, you know, where we say no, because it actually matters to us. You're meant to start seeing them as a woman. You're meant to think of them as a woman. When you're on your own, you're meant to talk about yeah. them in the third yeah. person as if they're yeah. a woman. And it's because they actually just aren't a woman. Reality, that's the ideology and reality of the, of the subtitle of the book. You know, if somebody just isn't female, I can't make them female. They can't make them female. Nobody can make them female. There's literally nothing that can be done to make them female. So it's all just in the words. 
Yeah. And then once you start to insist that people are rewriting reality in words, you have to become incredibly totalitarian. You have to forbid them to even think something that isn't right. But the thing is, it's just not amenable. You know, our, our, our perceptions of what sex people are, are just not amenable to our social engineering. So you have to become more and more totalitarian. You have to make it absolutely terrifying for somebody even to say in the nicest mm. possible way, look, you know, Caitlyn Jenner is actually male and Caitlyn Jenner, lovely, fine to call her Caitlyn, fine to call her she, fine to call her women, all of that. But, you know, she did win those medals as a man. You can't be allowed to yeah. say that. Reality has yeah. to be overwritten. And when you're being totalitarian about something, you need to put policemen in people's heads. You know, you can't, it can't all be done by the real police. It has to be the individuals do it. So you mentioned the, the, um, the mantras. I mean, the common mantra is trans women are women, women, trans men are men, non-binary people. And I always want to say are binary because that would be the, the finishing <laughs> by analogy with the others, but it's non-binary people are valid. These things are thought terminating cliches that stop you when you feel yourself straying off to a thought that you're not meant to have, which is, you know, gosh, Elliot Page got those roles when she, oh, trans men are men, trans men are men, yeah, you know, you have yeah. to stop your brain from going there. So I see the threats and the viciousness and the way that they hound in on you the second that you overstep any mark as being not just ways to keep you in line, but ways to keep everybody in line, to keep everybody with a policeman in their head. Are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom, anti-woke person in your life? Then look no further than the Spiked Shop. You can now get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU and cancel cancel culture. And if you're a Spike supporter, you get a 15% discount on everything in the shop. Just go to spiked-online.com slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. One of the flashpoints for me in this issue was when Bruce Jenner became Caitlyn Jenner and there was a lots of commentary about it. It was a pretty transformative moment in this whole issue. And I was reading things that were actually saying that Caitlyn Jenner has always been a woman from the very beginning. And you think to yourself, well, hold on, this is someone who won gold medals as a male athlete. This is someone who has fathered children. This is someone who lived as a man for a very, very long time. The idea that person that that person was always female and that we must now always think of them as female. So it really is getting into the mind. I thought that was a real insight into how Orwellian this movement was going to become. But I think what you've just said is very interesting in terms of this is not just about politeness, because most people are willing to be polite. They're willing to call people by the names they want to be known as. They're willing to do those kinds of things. It's about demanding submission to the whole idea. So you, so even in your private moments at home, late at night, having a glass of wine, you have to still think that this person is a woman and, and you're not allowed to dissent from that at, at any time. Uh, which is why I think it's very interesting that Rosie Duffield's likes on Twitter are always being policed because a like is basically a thought. It's basically, oh, I like that. That's a thought in your head. And so they're not only policing her speech and what she does and says, but also what she likes, you know, what's floating around in her brain. It is a kind of very authoritarian instinct. But just a, a brief question on this issue. I want to ask you where you stand because there are differences within the trans skeptical movement itself. You know, there are some pretty hardcore 
turfs in quote marks and then there are uh, others who are a little bit softer i want to ask you where you stand on the issue of pronouns because one difference that i've encountered from speaking to various women who are mounting this intellectual social pushback against the excesses of the trans movement there are some who say who absolutely refuse to use female pronouns for people who were born male and there are others who do use those pronouns as a courtesy as a form of politeness and the argument that's made by those who refuse to use them is that well if you start to play this game then you pay, you 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 buy into the logic of the entire movement which is that you must bow down you must kowtow and i've always i've never quite worked out where i stand on these issues i've had debates with trans people and i've used their the names that they want to be referred to as so i just want to ask you how do you fall down on that particular question i think like you i have many different and conflicting feelings about it so when i'm with a trans person and especially you know i had a trans friend stay with me a while ago i wouldn't invite someone to stay in my house and then misgender them mm. i mean because the option is they are not to invite them i could do that if i was going to do that and it would have been fine like there wasn't an expectation that i invited them and in the book in places i do use people's pronouns but that was for a reason a very specific reason which was i was writing a book and a book that i want people to read who don't yeah. agree with me mm. so it, sometimes people say oh yeah i suppose you had to compromise i don't think of it as compromise exactly i think of it as something much more important and principled than that so the thing that bothers me so much about this movement is the insistence that the activists have that they can remake everybody's world the way they want it to be. You know, I just don't see male people as women. I just don't. I can't. I'm not able to do it. I don't think anyone can. The people who say they can, I think they're fibbing to themselves. But I could be wrong, but maybe they, you know, I think at least sometimes they are and they sometimes demonstrate that by slipping up in what they say. So I can't do it, but they insist that I can. Now who am I to say that people should listen to me when they find me outrageously rude? They mm. are where they are. You know, they think what they think, and I have only one way that I can change what they think, and that's by persuading them. I need them to get I need to get them to read what I write, I need to get them to see what I'm trying to say, and I need them to, to to bring them around to my way of thinking. I can't just go, you know, we shouldn't. This shouldn't be the case. It shouldn't be that you can call men women or she or whatever. We're there. People are already. I have to speak into the world as it is. And I disagree so profoundly with this movement that's saying that we should speak into the world and make the world be as we want it to be, like just declare utopia by fiat. I can't do that either. And I think it's a profoundly illiberal and disgusting thing to say I can, even though I think I'm right. They think they're right. Mm -hmm. We have to talk to each other remembering that each of us thinks that we're right. Mm -hmm. So that the one thing that I'm not willing to compromise on, but I don't think any writer can, is I'm not willing to write something that isn't crystal clear. So I'm not willing to write, you know, I'm not that I do do any crime reporting, but you see, you know, crime reports that say, you know, woman went into supermarket and slashed people around with a machete and nowhere does it say actually a man in any way. Like it doesn't indicate in any way in this report that actually this is a trans woman or a male or used to be a man or any of those things that are all a bit inaccurate because this is just a man. I mean, we can't change sex, but at least tell you what's happening. So that was my only rule for myself, that at no yeah. point could somebody be unclear as to what I'm saying, what sex this person is, how they identify, what that means. But within that, I did on occasion use preferred pronouns. Yeah. I won't use them for rapists, not happening. 
But I mean, again, I wouldn't have got the book published, and this is compromise. I wouldn't have got the book published, published or read by the people I wanted to if I called, you know, Jessica and Eve he. So I wrote that section entirely without using pronouns. That's that's very interesting, and I think that's one of the difficulties we face in terms of the freedom of speech aspect of this discussion, which I want to ask you about shortly. But it's so, for example, the only social media I use is Instagram, and when I use Instagram, even there, if I ever talk about the trans issue. You have to be hyper careful not to misgender someone, as it's called, because you will get a warning. You will be sent a warning by the gods of Instagram who will tell you that if you do this again, you might be banned. And we, of course, we know that there are women on social media like Megan Murphy, for example, who have been banned for life for referring to Jessica Yaniv as he. So uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult area in terms of the freedom consequences. But I, I'll come back to that in a moment. The other thing I want to ask you about in relation to the transgender movement and some of the problems with it. I, you, you talk about the ideology of body denialism, which I think is a, is one of the most serious issues in relation to all of this, because all of us, I presume, are capable of empathising and sympathising with people who feel that they're in the wrong body, or particularly young people, uh, young girls, young boys going through puberty. They may be sexually confused they don't really know what they're all about we could sympathize with those people who might feel alienated from their own body and uncomfortable with the changes that are taking place but it strikes me that one of the problems with the trans movement is this encouragement of body denialism this encouragement of saying well you're this is the wrong body so saying to for example a 13 year old girl you are in the wrong body and i think people don't understand how grave the consequences of an ideology like that can be. So we know that there's a rise in uh, breast binding. There's uh, been a huge spike in young girls now going to gender uh, reassignment clinics, being put onto drugs. And I want to come back to the issue of detransitioning in a moment. But I guess this is a very simple question, maybe a two-parter question. Firstly, what do you mean by body denialism? And secondly, why can people not see that this is a serious problem, especially for kids going through those changes? I think you have to remember two things. One is that we're monkeys, and the other is that we're monkeys with really outsized brains. <laughs> we're strange creatures. You know, we're, we're the weakest of all the apes and, you know, we, our, only our sight is any good. Our sense of smell is terrible. We're physically weak. We can't run fast. Our backs are crap. You know, all sorts of things are wrong with us. But we have these big brains. And the result is that we're sort of, we have a dual life that other animals don't seem to have. I mean, not that we know very much about their interiority, but from what we can tell, you know, we live, we, we feel like we're a little hum homunculus behind our eyes that's carried around by a body that we're often not thinking about very much. Mm. Like if you look at dogs, the way that they live, they're clearly really in it the whole time. Like they're, you know, they're smelling, the whole world is so big and, you know, vivid to them. And we tend to go around in this blur of past and future and very little in the present. Like we're just, you know, I, I'm always wandering around just thinking about ideas mm -hmm. and not actually noticing what's around me. You know, I think mm -hmm. I, I live in the present very little. So it's not it's not strange that we have ideas like that we have souls or that we're going to you know that we were somewhere before we were born and we'll be somewhere after we die or that people could be in the wrong body. It, it, it's sort of natural given what weird animals we are, and then you know that means that we often have sort of dysphoria or dysmorphia because these are these are feelings of disease of your body or ideas that things are wrong with your body because we're not very in tune with our bodies. And it's been made so much worse in the past, say, 20 years since the internet took over everything. 
you know, we live on screens, we're used to avatars and computer games, we do a lot of our communication by typing now. And we've forgotten that we are actually embodied creatures, and most of us don't live that way very much. We don't make things, we don't, you know, move things in the world and touch them and feel them and, you know, interact. So we're living in a world that's creating dissociation from our bodies. And then into this comes this ideology that says there's an identity within all of us that's really not in any way connected with the body. And in particular, the way it's not connected is is to do with the sex of the body. And we're all uncomfortable talking about sex and thinking about sex to some extent. I mean, you know, I, I regard embarrassing my children as one of the major joys in life. So maybe me less than many <laughs> other people. But, you know, even I find it rather difficult to, you know, to really think about the physicality of the people around me in the sex sense. Because it's just, we, we, you just don't. That's kind of weird. You know? you're, yeah. you're working yeah. with them or, you know, they're on the train or something. You're not thinking that way. Animals must because they don't have clothes. We don't. And then... You know, then this idea comes into your head that what's wrong with you at a time that things are often very wrong with you, namely to your teens, is something to do with this inner sense. You don't feel right in your body. Nobody feels right in their body at puberty. Your body's changing too fast. It's embarrassing. You don't know who you are. And this idea lands with a thud and it gets mm. taken you know, It gets taken up by all sorts of people whose issues they may be that they're self-harming or they may have an eating disorder or they might be autistic spectrum disorder or they may be anxious or depressed or or none of, none of the above, but just this seems like an explanation for things to them. So I think it's really important to remember that we're actually creating this gender dysphoria. It's yeah. not that there's a sort of a naturally occurring yeah. instance rate of gender dysphoria. We're creating it by our society, by the way that we live and then by the, thing, the ideas that we teach our children. And then we tell them, oh, we, we made this idea in your head that your body is wrong. And by the way, the answer to it is cutting it up. And because of this dissociation, you know, children children really think that they're being promised that they're going to get a perfect body of the opposite sex. Yeah. Yeah. They're not wise enough yet to know about scar tissue and nerve damage and, you know, that what's being made is just a simi- simulacrum and, you know, that male and female are down to the cellular level or any of those things. They're being sold a pup, actually. Yeah. Before we come on to the depressing but incredibly important issue of detransitioning uh, amongst young people just on that question of body denialism and the idea this active encouragement of young people to make their body conform to their supposed sexual soul or sexual brain i sometimes have to wobble my head to make myself realize that society itself is often encouraging young people to take this drastic action but there's, it poses as a, as a radical movement. It poses as this great leap forward for the rights of, you know, eccentric minorities or marginalized minorities and so on. But isn't there a very conservative element to this as well? So, for example, if you are a 14 or 15 year old girl, you might be a bit tomboyish. Maybe you're going to grow into to become a lesbian at some point, or maybe you just have supposedly male views. I'm, I'm doing quote marks. People can't see that. And what the trans movement is essentially saying is, well, if you do all of this, you're obviously a man, really deep down inside. And so you end up in a situation, just to give one example uh, of, of young female uh, lesbians, for example, you end up in a situation where young lesbians are being medically corrected in order to make them more understandable. And I just wonder, how have we ended up in a situation where it once again, like it happened many, many decades ago, it has become acceptable to administer drugs to 
young gay people in order to correct uh, and I often remind people that Iran does a huge number of transgender operations precisely because it is such a virulently homophobic society and cannot tolerate the existence of young gay men in particular and would prefer to turn them into women. How have we ended up in that situation and why are so few people capable of seeing that allowing young people to flourish and grow into their sexuality is far preferable to what we're currently putting onto their shoulders. So if you believe the idea, like if you've bought the idea that people have sexed souls, then of course you'd fix, you know, what you think of as a birth defect as early as you could. So it's all this idea's fault, in my opinion. Like when you, when you have a bad idea, like I say this in the introduction, your ideas have consequences. You You can't partition them off from other bits of the world You can't say, oh, you know, there's some people, just a few of them for whom we have to think about everything differently, but everyone else will just keep thinking about things the same way as we were. It doesn't work like that. It'd be like saying, you know, over here, zero equals one, but the rest of mathematics is fine. No, zero equals one, you've just screwed up the rest of mathematics. (laughs) And then within the ideology, you see, um, because it's posited as being sort of an inner knowing, an inner essence that only you can have revealed to yourself in some, I mean, presumably rather religious way, like that you've meditated and, you know, I don't know, does a does a revelation come to you or something? They deny that this is actually all about stereotypes. They'll say, no, you know, a trans woman could be like anybody. A trans woman can be a t- tomboy, just like a woman can be a tomboy. Mm-hmm. I mean, all women can be tomboys, so trans women can. But what's the thing that's meant to make you think that you were really meant to be a woman if it isn't to do with anything material at all like if it isn't you know if you don't if you're a if you're a bloke you're a man you don't want to wear women's clothes you know you don't want to hang around with women you don't want to do the things that women normally do you don't feel uncomfortable around men any of those sorts of sort of like behavioral things what could practically give you the idea that actually you feel like a woman there just isn't anything so they say that it's about this inner feeling but actually especially in teaching materials if you look at what they do in schools like it's unbelievably regressive like it's mm. amazing how regressive people are able to be when they're killing themselves they're being progressive you know i've seen teaching aids i mean i describe some yeah. of them in the book you know where my favorite one is definitely the mermaids one that's a it's a 10 part like 10 little figurines and at one end is barbie and the other end is gi joe and then these figurines morphing between the two of them and they're literally supposed to show this to kids and say where do you think you are and I mean, most kids don't actually have any doubts about what sex they are. They're yeah. fine. But you're introducing these doubts. And then you're also saying to all the kids, you know, if you happen to be a bookish, quiet boy, you're finding a boy, it's not a problem with you in any way. Or indeed, you know, you're heading towards puberty and you're starting to think that it's the boys you think look nice, not the girls. You look at a spectrum like that and you think, well, I'm obviously not at the G.I. Joe end of it. Yeah. So does yeah. that mean I'm gender fluid or gender flux or non-binary or horrors I might really be a girl and you know, say all of that in reverse for the girls? So actually you're encouraging children to act out the stereotypes for their sex so that nobody doubts them. You're saying to boys, you know, if you are the, the sort of kid who likes chess and you, know, you really liked your big sister's to- dolls when you were little and you don't like the rough and tumble things, you know, actually other people are going to think that you're a girl. And I've heard people saying this, that uh, parents saying that you know, if they have kids who are you know, notably gender non-conforming, that neighbours or teachers sort of say in a self-important way to them, oh, has it occurred to you that she, like talking of a little boy, she might be a trans girl? Mm. And I just, just fuck off, you know, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> you know, he's just, he's, just, he's just an unusual kid and he might grow up gay and just mind your own business, you know? Spiked is publishing more than ever. 
articles, interviews, book reviews, long reads, podcasts. Every week, Spiked is packed with brilliant content on the big issues and big themes of our time. And now there's a really simple way for you to keep yourself in the loop on everything that we publish by signing up to our daily newsletter. In the daily newsletter, you will receive a roundup of everything we publish that day, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. What's not to like? So stay on top of everything Spiked produces by signing up for our daily newsletter today. Just go to www.spiked-online.com slash newsletters. Okay, so there's obviously a, a, a very serious side. Well, there's a very serious side to all of the things that we've been discussing and all of the things that you talk about in your book very well. But I want to talk about the detransitioning question, which you've mentioned earlier. And I mean, I'm shocked by the way in which women are treated in the transgender movement discussion, but that's almost overshadowed by the way in which detransitioning people are treated. I mean, it is just so horrific the way that these people are talked about and demonized, even though I think in many ways they are the most important part of this discussion, which is the the question of... Uh, what are we imposing physically and emotionally on people who feel a bit gender dysphoric or a bit confused? A lot of these issues were brought to the fore by uh, the heroic Kira Bell. Um, you've written about detransitioning and you cover it in the book too. And you talk about just how serious this can be when we have a society which not only provides cross-sex hormones and mastectomies and uh, castrations, uh, you know, operations, very serious operations on perfectly healthy bodies. Not only do we have a society that provides that, but we have a society that validates that and celebrates that and says, this is a wonderful thing for someone to do. It's them. It's becoming your real self. And very often people are left with serious scars, um, bodies that are unrecognizable from what they had been previously things that will last a lifetime and which which will impact on them for a lifetime and 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 so when people choose to detransition or rather to go back to the sex they are it's very difficult for them they have very little sympathy in the broader media aside from writers like you and a few others um so how important do you think the detransitioning question is and why is that something that as you described earlier, something that really pushed you to think, right, this is something I need to start covering. So within the ideology, because the the gender identity is posited to be this thing that only you can know and that's almost sacred to you, there's no possibility of mistake. Like if somebody says, if you say you're a woman, I have no grounds to challenge that. It must simply be accepted. So we're treating children who come and say, you know, I think like I was meant to be a boy or I feel like I'm really a boy like a girl, I mean, as if, you know, as if they're just revealing an inner truth about themselves. Yeah. That's just a fact. It's not a fact that anyone else can tell, but it's a fact that they can tell, you know, unerringly. And then afterwards, when people detransition, you'll sometimes hear trans rights activists say, well, look, there's no operation that has no regret. And that's actually yeah. true. Like even very minor operations, like if you just, you know, something like, you know, removing a, an ingrown toenail or something, there's, there's a rate of regret because every operation has a risk. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about somebody who within an ideology that says you cannot be wrong about who you are turned out to be wrong about who they were. Mm. 
So the next thing they'll say is, uh, well, they're never really trans. But mm. I mean, how can you say that somebody was never really trans within an ideology that says everyone is right about what they say about themselves? So these these kids are like, um, well, they are like apostates, you see. They were, they were believers who've given up their belief. And there's nothing that a yeah. very religious person hates more than an apostate. Yeah. They, don't mind, they don't mind an unbeliever as much. Somebody who believed and gives up believing is the worst thing. Yeah. And they're, they're, pe- they're the people who are shunned. I mean, if you look at the way the Scientology treats the people who are suppressives or something, they call them that, that may not be right. It's something like that. And I, you know, I look at these kids and I say, you're the evidence. The way you're treated is the evidence that this is, a, you know, a really intolerant ideology because, you know, I've left a religion. I was brought up Catholic and I don't believe anymore. Most Catholics, I've never had a Catholic actually say to me, you know, well, you'll burn in hell or something. (laughs) Some of them must think it, you know, but they don't feel any need to to say that because we've kind of domesticated most religions into our liberal secular society. But because this isn't seen as a belief system, that's one of the things that people push back about my book. They say there isn't an ideology. There is no there is no trans ideology. There are just trans people. And I mean, I actually, in a way, think there aren't even trans people. Like, I'm not. I'm increasingly unsure what people mean when they say mm. trans people. Like, they're a very heterogeneous group, at least I would say. Yeah. Um, but there's certainly a trans ideology, and it says something about what sort of people we are, what sort of creatures we are, what meaning we have, what our characteristics are, in the same way that a religion does. And so, the detransitioners for me are the evidence that this is a belief system. Yeah. And the rate of regret isn't exactly the important thing, though obviously the higher it is, the worse, just because there's more people damaged. It's the fact that they prove that the the sort of central doctrine of this religion, that you have a gender identity, you're the only one who can know it, but you know it infallibly, is not true. Absolutely. Uh, I agree with that. I want to come on to the question, well, return to the question of, of women and what this does and says to women and I want to talk specifically about the erasure of women, even the erasure of the terminology of womanhood. So the word woman is used less frequently, and in some official documents it's replaced by supposedly less offensive terms. For example, uh, birthing parent rather than mother. You can't possibly say the word mother. That's very shocking these days. And there's this growth of gender-neutral language, which you describe very well as depicting women as orifices as providers of genetic material and as vessels for growing offspring so it's this incredibly dehumanizing language and one of the striking things is that this very rarely applies to men so for example male cancer charities will still say that prostate cancer is a cancer that impacts on men so if you're a man between these ages you've got to go to your doctor and get checked up but when it comes to female specific cancers or female specific health needs or uh, uh, childbirth of course which is exclusive to women whatever people might say um, that's where the gender neutral language becomes very important so in terms of this erasure of women i wonder how far do you think that can go? Do you think there will come a point when even people who have been pretty soft on this issue or haven't raised their head above the parapet in the way that you and JK Rowling and a few other people have, do you think there will come a point where people will say, hold on, this is just going too far. These are normal words. These are good words. It's it's good to appeal to women in the most common universal language imaginable if you want them to have health checks if uh, i often think for example of uh, 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 immigrant women in the uk who don't necessarily have a good grasp of english who won't understand when you talk about 
you know, cervix havers coming for a, a checkup, you know, they, they will be, feel possibly confused by that kind of terminology. Do you think there will come a point when people will say that's enough? We've got to start defending language and defending reason against these uh, excesses of this movement. I do think that moment will come, but I don't think it'll be the language that does it. I mean, the language right. for me was so indicative. Like, I, as I've been writing this book, I just keep thinking about being brought up religious and, you know, terminology for the Bible and religion keeps coming to me. <laughs> and one of, one of the phrases that comes to my mind now is, by their works shall you know them. So mm. you don't listen to what people say, you look at what they do. So on the face of it, this is a movement that's sex neutral. You know, a man can identify as a woman, a woman can identify as a man. It's no different for the two, but it all goes one way. The accommodation and the demands all go one way when you actually look at what they do. Yeah. So I give examples in the book, for example, a particular online medical dictionary that gives all this guff when it's asked to define the word female, that it used to mean the sex that produces, um, that has ovaries and produces eggs. But now it means a feeling, blah, 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 fill it in yourself. And then for men, it just says the sex that produces spermatozoa, <laughs> So so these things tell you that it's all one way. It's all about enabling male people who want to count as women or female to do so. And there are other there, there are other examples. I mean, you know, there's the notorious example of Andrea Longchu, who's an American trans woman who is described. I'm sorry, these are her words, not mine, his words, whatever you prefer. Um, you know, that the, the, the asshole is a universal vagina. I, I mean, you just couldn't make it up, could you? You know, you just couldn't. It's so, so disgusting. Disgusting. I, mm. I can two babies through my mm. vagina. I did not do it through my asshole and just shove off with your grotesque imagery. You know? <laughs> this got published. This got published in a book called Females a Concern. Oh and the, the misogyny of it is just yeah. gross and the porn riddled nature of it too. So all of this things bother think this sort of thing bothers me a lot. Um but I think a lot of people don't see it. They don't they think it's just kind. Like they don't notice that because they understand the word cervix, so they don't notice how many people don't. Yeah. And they feel virtuous. It's lovely to have something to feel virtuous about that doesn't actually involve you, for example, having to give your money to poor people or, you know, cover for a colleague while their wife is sick or something like that. Like, so just, you know, changing your, your, your email signature to say she, her, like, isn't that like a really easy way to feel virtuous? So I really don't think the language will trigger it, unfortunately. What I think will trigger it really is the very visceral sexed impact on teenage girls when their fathers wake up to it. Yeah. So I know that sounds very specific, but the two examples would be sports and changing rooms. Yeah. I think the moment when 14 year old girls come home and say to their dad, there's a bloke in our changing room. He's totally naked. You know, you fill in the blanks yourself and he's, um, you know, he's, he's in our sports team. He's in the girls team. And when I said something about it, they said I could leave the team if I don't like it. And I, I, you know, I now can't run anymore and I really wanted to run. And, you know, I thought I was going to get good enough to try out for the county or something. That bloke is not the sort of person who is amenable to the same level of shaming and guilt tripping as most women are. And I don't think that you can shame him in particular by telling him that he's not a good feminist ally. Yeah. I think most men will go, <laughs> you know, fine, fine by me. She's my daughter now, you know tell this bloke that he can get out of my daughter's changing room. So that's the sort of moment. I mean, we've had many of those moments, but they've not unfortunately been so far hitting women that men care about. So they've happened, for example, a lot already to women in rape crisis shelters, domestic violence shelters, prisons. I mean, right now in many, many countries in the world, there are males who call themselves women, including men who murdered women, raped women, 
you know, tortured women, locked up in women's prisons. That's true in America, Australia, Canada, the UK, Ireland, you know, lots of countries. Uh, true in Sweden. You know, there are men who've committed horrendous, horrendous crimes against mm. women, locked up in women's prisons. Well, it turns out we don't give a toss about women prisoners. Mm. I guess they're out of sight, out of mind. I don't think yeah. we give a toss about prisoners generally, actually. Um, but, you know, when it comes to be, you know, that the, the middle class's daughters are having absolute, like, perverse situations imposed upon them, and they're told that they can shove off if they don't like it. That, I think, is where you, you, that's where ideology really meets reality. Absolutely. One of the eye-opening moments for me was when a trans activist called Travis Alabanza was campaigning for the right to, he's a male, uh, he was campaigning for the right to use the girls' changing rooms in Topshop, and it, it struck a chord with me because I used to take my nieces, around that time, I used to sometimes take my nieces out into London and I would take them shopping in Topshop and they were 13 or 14. And the thought of a male bodied person or a man going into those changing rooms where girls are trying on clothes, Snapchatting each other, having their private conversations, I just found so wrong, so completely morally uh, and socially wrong that it was kind of a, an eye opening moment. And I think you're absolutely right that, that a lot of the pushback is going to come from people who have a close relationship with young girls, fathers in particular, and who want to, uh, who want them to have the right to grow up in their own spaces, which is a right that girls have had for a very long time and is now being undermined. I'll say something particularly about the fathers and the men as well, which is, you know, women, especially young women, can be total idiots about what men are like. Lots of them know perfectly well because lots and lots of women have experienced violence or sexual abuse in the home or whatever. But the ones who haven't can be unbelievably yeah. naive. Men aren't naive about other men. They know perfectly well what men are like <laughs> when there's no women around. So you're not going to get men who are saying to themselves, you know, nobody will take advantage of this. I've had so yeah. many women say this, you know. It's like, God, what planet are you on? And I've lived yeah. a pretty sheltered life, but I'm not that dumb. Yeah. <laughs> well, a another issue that you describe as being part of the potential boiling point of this movement is in relation to well you, you've mentioned the changing room question especially around girls uh, underage girls and also women's prisons I, I i still cannot believe that contemporary society puts male rapists into women's prisons i mean it is utterly mind-boggling the optimistic side of me thinks that in 15 years time people will look back on our era and think we had gone completely and utterly mad. But then another issue you raise as, as, as potentially pushing us to this, to the breaking point is men in women's sports. And so the invasion of women's sports by people who are male, let's not beat around the bush in relation to this. And there's a very good reason why there is a distinction between male and female sports. It's, it's in relation to the biological nature of these two different groups, the strength, what happens to them through puberty and the transformations that take place. And so we're talking at a time when the Olympics are happening and it's a supposedly revolutionary Olympics because Laurel Hubbard is going to be weightlifting as a woman. This is someone who is male and who has previously elbowed aside women who have trained all their adult lives in this sport. Very often women, First Nations women, women who come from uh, native communities who have had to work incredibly hard to achieve the success that they deserve to achieve. And that's been celebrated by lots of people. If and when Laurel Hubbard takes to the podium, has success, or another male athlete who's, who's involved in women's sport 
how much do you think that will be a, an opportunity to to be crass about it for people like you to say well look this is really going too far and this is evidence that women's spaces women's rights women's ability to progress in sport in politics in society is being undermined by this movement i mean i have by now seen males on the podium taking gold surrounded by women too many times to think the first time I saw saw it, I truly thought that that was the end of it. I thought you could show that picture to anybody and anybody would get it straight away. Well, it just turns out that the body denialism goes very far. And again, I think it's, I don't think that anybody who lived in an agrarian society could possibly have not understood the fundamental differences between male and female bodies when it came to strength, speed, that sort of stuff. But it turns out that we can. Like, I, I tried to pitch my book to several people before I found somebody to publish it. And the very first publisher I talked through about it with, there was a young, youngish man, I mean, married, I'd say he's early thirties, something like that. And, um, you know, he was trying to be polite about it. He obviously thought that I was a massive bigot, but you know, we had known each other before. So he was trying not to say it too openly. And then he said, but the sports thing, surely we can solve that with weight and height classes. And I just looked at him and said, you know, seriously, is that what they taught you in school? Like, Mm -hmm. really, is that what's Mm -hmm. happened to education since I was in school? He was a bit embarrassed, but he did think that. And I've discovered since that that's because that's what they're told. Mm -hmm. But I mean, just in case anyone listening doesn't know, when you match people for weight and height, which is actually already very hard to do because men are bigger. But when you do, like men will lift 30% more than a woman in the same weight class. So there are just very big differences. And then the other thing that people say is, oh, well, the curves overlap. You know, some women are stronger than some men. Not very many, no, but there are some. The point is quite mediocre men beat even the best women. Yeah. That's, the, that's the point that you want to say. Yeah. So I just don't know. I mean, I'd like to think that the picture wakes people up, or I'd like to think that, you know, Laurel Hubbard getting gold would make people think, gosh, that's unfair. I mean, that's a person who's 43 and who really wasn't very good when he was a man, let wait, you know, when he was identifying as a man and he was weightlifting. He really wasn't very good. And there's no woman of 43 in the Olympics. I mean, there, I, I saw a video the other day about some of the women going to the Olympics and it, it showed Simone Biles, who is a phenomenon. There is not mm. going to be anyone as good as her for a very long time. It's just mm. surreal. It's like, she's 24 and this is her last Olympics. Yeah. Yeah, and and then they were talking about Alison Felix, one of the world's fastest women, fastest at her distance, talking about the recovery after having a baby. You know, I mean, and then this is forty three year old bloke who seems quite out of condition comes in and you know lifts more than most of the women. I'm a bit afraid that if if, if Hubbard doesn't win gold, the disingenuous people who don't know how to make a serious yeah. argument will say, "Oh, that proves it." Yeah. Like, God, these people are so bad at arguing. So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, what what can wake people up? Like, if you can't look at Laurel Hubbard, if you can't think about rapists in women's jails, if you can't think it's obvious that you wouldn't allow men into the changing room top shop, etc. What is it? What is it that wakes you up? I don't know. Maybe this is not a good time to ask you the final question in that case, but um, I will ask it anyway. I think one of the reasons that your book is so important and some of the other recent books, including by Kathleen Stark and a few others, have, have been so important in this discussion is because is because it it is very difficult to talk about these issues so you talk about the fact that it, it very criticism is just not allowed and we've talked already about the way in which women are treated if they raise critical questions about the trans movement but it's very very serious i mean jk rowling can r- ride it out because she is uncancellable she is arguably the most important cultural figure britain has produced in the past 20 years she's very wealthy she's very very well established 
um, which I don't think takes away from how brave she has been to say what she said. Uh, but it, it does mean that she pretty much can't be cancelled. But other people can be cancelled and have been cancelled. People have lost their jobs for raising these questions. People have been, largely women, have been no platformed for raising these issues, have been censored and banned from universities and hounded and harassed and demonised. And I think one of the consequences of that, we hear about the big blow up cases of someone being no platformed or someone being sacked. But what we don't hear about is the, the undoubted trickle down effect of that. And there will be many people who will say, well, I'm going to keep quiet because look what happens to JK Rowling. Even JK Rowling, when she raises these issues, she is sent pornography. She sent threats. She sent abuse. I'm going to just keep my ideas to myself. So there is this, I think that's the worst aspect of cancel culture. It's the stuff we don't see. It's the way it it is understandably internalized by people. So when I see trans allies, including columnists in the broadsheet press who will say, well, look at this poll showing that uh, most women support trans rights. And you just think, well, hold on. Most women also know that if they say anything critical about trans rights, you guys will call them bitches and the C word and turfs and make their life a misery. So it's possibly not surprising that these kinds of ideas are taking hold or, or are not being pushed back against it in a, in a very serious way so far. So um, do, do you think that books like yours are important in terms of not simply putting forward the ideas that you want to put forward, but also in terms of signaling to people that it is okay to have these ideas and it is important to express them openly. So I do believe in the avalanche theory of social change. And, you know, things change very slowly at first. And each person who says something, if that thing is worth saying, or sometimes if it's not, I mean, look at this bloody movement, uh, encourages other people to say yeah. it. So I do know that already, that people, you know, people do get on to me because I, I do hear about the cases that people don't hear about because people yeah. write to me privately. Um, and, you know, they tell me about jobs lost and, you know, really sort of low key things, you know, like I stopped working as a teaching assistant because I wasn't willing to collaborate in the transition of a six year old boy, this sort of thing. You know, I got that one recently. And so I know that that's going on. And I know that for those people, it's very helpful that there's something inverted commas respectable out there that they can point people to. So, of course, people will say I'm not respectable. I mean, they, they say all sorts of horrible things about me and they do. But that said, you know, it's a proper book. It got published. I didn't have to self-publish it as I thought I would at some point. It's got great reviews. It was number 10 um, on Amazon at one point and all the books in the UK. It made it to number seven this week in the Sunday Times bestseller list for hardbacks, et cetera, et cetera. So those things do signal that it's not marginal. I think one of the oddest things the trans rights activists have managed to do is to persuade people that believing in biological sex is a marginal thing yeah. to do. <laughs> I mean, their belief is the, is the Johnny-come-lately. It's the really bizarre belief, and it's just arisen in the last very short time. But, you know, they've, they've, they, they, it's, the, it's the sort of no debate thing. It's the, you know, this has come, this is it. Anyone who thinks anything else is a weirdo or they're a tiny yeah. minority. I mean, somehow we're both terrifying, you know, oppressing trans people constantly, but also a tiny minority, you know. Yeah. Schrodinger's turf and uh, yes yeah, so, so that, that's the the narrative they've got that debate is in itself bigoted and that hardly anyone thinks like me so books like mine or cases like Maya Forrest Atters or these organizers organizations that get set up like the LGB alliance they do say to people actually you're not alone you're not the only person who thinks those things um you know somebody actually bothered to write them down at the length of the book in a way that if you read it it's quite hard to pick holes in although of course people try so you too can say it 
and maybe I help people to formulate their thinking as well. Yeah. I try, it's, it's, you know, it is a book about an idea. I say this, it's the first sentence, this is a book about an idea. It's not a book about trans people as such. It's meant to be telling people about this ideology and why it doesn't work. So it'll help them to say to other people, no, I don't want this. I don't think this will work. This is the problem that it will cause. No, I, and, and tell them what the likely pushback is and arm them with answers to that too. Helen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.